going to be going for 13 weeks, and it's called Rooted. <clears throat> what it's all about is this whole idea of the fact that, as the video said, we don't make our beliefs. If, if our beliefs are, are in Scripture, we drop from that and we allow those beliefs to actually make us. And so for the next 13 weeks, we're going to be just looking at the thing that is kind of this dusty document within our, our church, uh, just what we have here at our church, which is our Articles of Faith. The thing that, as Munoka Bible Church, these are the things we believe. These are the things that we kind of hold to. At our, as a church, we disagree on lots of different things theologically. We're, we have different interpretations about certain stuff, but these things, these are kind of our core. These are the essentials of who we are. And so we're going to take 13 weeks to just explore what we believe, why we believe it, and why, what difference that makes in our life. Because I honestly do believe that the things that we believe aren't just mere doctrines and dogmas, these dusty things that are just out there. They actually they transform our life, and, um, either positively or negatively. So this week, we're starting off with God. What do we believe about God? And, and throughout the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about what do we believe about the Bible? What do we believe exclusively about the person of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, baptism, death, all that stuff. But, but we're going to start off with just kind of an introduction to what do we believe about God. And so if you've got your notes, um, or if you don't, there's notes in the back, um, you can grab those. What we believe about God is, is kind of ex- just explained through in uh, the first part of our Articles of Faith, which says this. We believe that there is but one living and true God who is spirit in nature, existing eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's the creator of the universe, all creation, and supreme ruler thereof. So let's go ahead and uh, take that apart. The first part of that says, and we believe that there is but one living and true God. Uh, and this is something that from, from all, all the way back in the ancient, ancient people of the Hebrews, the, where, where our faith kind of stems out of, from the very beginning, they said, we can point our origin back to the very beginning with one God. And that's countercultural because everyone around us believes in a multiplicity of gods. You believe in the God of the, the weather, the God that, that's in this region, and you worship this God, you sacrifice for this God, you shed blood for this God. And the Hebrew people are like, no, that's not true. I mean, these things are, you're making these idols up, and you're, you're, you're kind of this fabricate, fabricated, organized religion thing isn't, isn't, isn't true. There's this one true God, and he relates to us. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, they had a prayer uh, that they would sing and that they would recite called the Shema. It says, Shema, O Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, which means, hear, O Israel, listen, Israel, there is but one God, and our God is one. They wanted to be reminded of the fact that in spite of the fact that everyone else worships tons of stuff, we worship him, the one and true God. You fast forward into the New Testament, you have Paul who grew up singing that Shema, praying that Shema, being someone who saw that the God thing was still like vibrant all around him. Tons of gods everywhere. So he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there's no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, for us there's but one God, the Father from whom all things came, from, for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came, and through whom we live. Paul acknowledges the fact that, you know what? Regardless of what epoch, regardless of what time frame, regardless of when you grew up or, or what your family was like, you're going to be surrounded by people who worship gods, lots of gods. Now, in modern day, like, we don't have, like, we're not 
we don't make like our car the divinity. We don't like honestly like candles around, you know, our 401ks or, or whatever. We don't do that, but we still worship these things. These are lords of our life. We worship, we worship the, the dreams that we have. We worship the, the failures that we've had because we can't shake them. We worship shame. We worship guilt. We worship stuff that, that makes us feel happy for a little bit of time. When we pour our life, we sacrifice for these things. We shed our blood for these things. Paul says, yeah, that, that's totally common, but that's not us. We, we worship the one, one true God. And he is one, above and beyond all the rest. We believe that there's one God, and, and, the, and that's good. But when you're telling a group of people who worships lots of different kinds of gods, they're worshiping gods who are angry and wrathful and, and inconsistent. Like, like, I don't even know what to do to please this God. Like, what am I, I'm supposed to, I'm trying to make him happy, and yet my crops still fail. What, what's up? Like, you're telling me that, there's, that these guys are fake and there's one true God, but what is he like? Well, this God is living. He's not dead. He's living, and he's true. Paul says in, in, in 1 Thessalonians, talking about a group of people who, like him, discovered this reality of who Jesus is, and it's changed, because they're like leaving all these past gods and past idols. It says, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve who? The living and true God. Every single person on this planet is going to disappoint you. Every single person. No matter how amazing they are, no matter how high their integrity is. Everyone's flaky. Everyone's flawed. But this God, he's living and he's true. You can count on him. He keeps his word. He's not luring you along just, just to debate and switch you. This God is living and true. We believe that there is but one God living and true who is spirit in nature existing eternally. Now this, is, this kind of gives us a more of a quality of who is this God that we worship? Is this a God that we have to like make this pilgrimage to go to some like shrine to like meet with him? Is this a God that, that is, is physically in one location? No. We realize that God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in the spirit and in truth. This God is not just this, this again, this thing that we hang on the wall or we go to some church or shrine or synagogue to worship. He's spirit. And the, and the cool thing with that is that if we're created in God's image, there's something different about you than just biology. You're not just muscles and, and, and nerve endings. There's something about you that's beyond that, that's sacred. Because this spirit, this God who is spirit, created inside of you a soul that can, that can occupy the spirit, that, that can, can house the spirit. That wherever you are, he is. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. And he exists eternally. Okay? Here's an important passage that as Illinoisans we can't relate to too often. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The only mountains that we have is when there's like some subdivision going up and they make like a 15-foot mound of dirt. We're like, look at it. We will summit this mountain. We get super stoked. I get stoked about that. When I'm driving down 55 and I see clouds forming what looks like mountains on the horizon, I'm like, hmm. But see, like everywhere else on the planet, they've got elevation and topography. And for those people, they could say things like, you know what? I look at trees, a tree grows up and it dies. I look at buildings that humans erect and they're there for a good long time. But as soon as a war or battle goes through or just, you know, entropy happens, that, that building crumbles. But I look on the horizon, those mountains have not changed. But even, even if I had a chance to watch those mountains for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years and I could watch a gradual erosion, 
Even the thing that, that's the most fixed object on my horizon, even that erodes. You, God, are older than that. You, God, are more timeless than that. You, God, are more sure, more fixed, more trustworthy than even the mountains. We believe that there is but one God living in true, uh, living in true God who is spirit and nature existing eternally. And this is the most easy part of the whole thing. In three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Nobody has a hard time understanding that, by the way. <laughs> this is probably the most simplistic aspect of our, of our articles of faith relating to God. Now, honestly, that's, that's something that a lot of Christians, even if they believe, they have a hard time explaining, understanding, wrapping their mind around. And part of this is because the fact that, you know, if you look in the Bible, coming back to that Shema, that thing that, that they prayed in Deuteronomy 6.4, listen, Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is what? One. It does not say, listen, Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is three. So you're telling me that God is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? That's like three gods. Like, that, that makes, how do you, how can you reconcile that with the, this passage, which is in the Bible? How do you reconcile that with the people who were always going against the, the multiplicity of God saying, no, but God is one? Well, it's because when we look at that word one, that word one is achad. Everyone say achad. Yeah, use that in everyday language. Achad. Achad means one, but it's not just like numeric one. It's a quality of one. It's a multi-layered word in Hebrew. And what it means is unity in plurality. It's, it's this like this plural unity one. It, it's the word that's used for a husband and wife when they get married. The man and the woman become achad. They become one. There's two people, but they're one. There's, something, there's a unique unity in that, that, that that's, that's hard to explain. And to a greater degree, that's who God is. Now that's why when, when all of a sudden we start hearing things in the New Testament, people weren't flipping out about blasphemy about God, and they weren't saying, yeah, Deuteronomy 6.4 doesn't really mean what it seems to be saying. They understood this through the lens of this unity in plurality. I mean, when Jesus is baptized in Matthew chapter 3, take a look and you can see each of the three persons of the Godhead exhibited in this passage. After his, ba- after his baptism, as Jesus, bing, came up out of the water, the heavens were open and he saw the Spirit of God, bing, descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice, a voice from heaven, bing, some, coming from someplace else, said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. And when Jesus dies on the cross and he rises again, he tells his disciples, all right, you've got this news. You heard what I had to say. Now go, go into the whole world. Go in the whole world making disciples and baptizing them. And what does he say? What's his, his, his formula to, to say when someone gets baptized? To let people, this is what Jesus says. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we see that each of these three people have like unique roles that you have, and this is overly simplistic, but God the Father is the creator, it's the Son, it's the redeemer, the Holy Spirit is the helper. Three persons, one essence. So we believe in this unity in the plurality and in, in individual roles that the three people of the Godhead serve. So, we, uh, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he is the creator of the universe, all creation and supreme ruler thereof. If the question ever comes about, like, well, who did this? Well, it's God did this. God create, crafted this. DNA, central nervous system, who came up with that? Well, it was God. Well, why? It was for himself. God did this because he is that type of artist, and he did that type of amazing, innovative work for his glory. Even you and I, we were created for him. 
In the book of Colossians, it says, For all things in heaven and on earth were created in him. All things, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions, whether principalities or powers, all things were created through him. And what? For him. This is, what, at Manuka Bible Church, what we believe about God. And in the next 12 weeks, you're going to get a chance to, to really sink your teeth into what that means. But honestly, that, that sounds good, and you, you can see where the scripture points it out, but wh- what difference does that make? Like, does that do anything in our everyday life? Like, the fact that I believe that, that, that God is three in one, that I believe in the Trinity, that I believe that, that, that God is the supreme ruler of everything that he's created. What difference does that make in my everyday life? Well, I could give you a bazillion, but I'm just going to give you six, Okay. And in your notes, it's right underneath that section that says metamorphosize, which means just to be transformed. And this, we, when we root our belief in who God is, it transforms us. First off, we become more genuinely centered. My belief, because my belief is rooted in what God's word says about his right to rule, I can become more genuinely centered. To the degree I root my belief in what scripture has to say, that God is the, the supreme sovereign power. To the degree that I do that, I will become more genuinely centered because the center of my life otherwise is me. I mean, that, that's, I mean, think about your own life story. I mean, all of our pitfalls, all of the major fails that we've had have been because we are the center. That the axis of our life revolves, or that we are the axis of our life, that everything in our life, our decisions, our desires, all that stuff revolves around what do I want? What, what do I think? When I believe this because of, Jesus, because of the biblical claim that God is sovereign, he's the ultimate ruler, then all of a sudden I reorder my life to make him the epicenter. When I'm making those decisions, my life choices, the mundane and the significant, all of a sudden I'm more genuinely centered. And it starts to make me do things that I don't normally naturally want to do as a human, like be humble. I wrote this down. Three, three things we as humans detest. Surrender, humility, and confession. All of us hate these things. Who wants to give up and surrender to someone else? Nobody. Who wants to be humble? Even the most humble people that we know have at our core an egocentric streak. And confession? Who wants to admit that they were wrong? Anyone here? No. One. Awesome. (laughs) You're wrong. No. (laughs) I honestly, for most of us grow up as kids, we recognize that as kids... It's easy to pass the blame. Who did this? Josh. Josh did this. And as grown-ups, we get more professional in that. We're more refined. And we don't like just pass the blame. We just get defensive. Well, what are you talking about? Who are you to say that? Step off. Right? We detest these things. A true encounter with the sovereign God. The, God, the claims from the scripture that we're pointing out, a true encounter with the sovereign God causes us to want what we normally would hate to become what we could never alone attain. We want happiness, we want peace. And we do that by avoiding surrender, humility, and confession. We have chaos. When I realize that God is sovereign, my life is now revolving around him, my choices, etc. And my life is reordered. It's more genuinely centered because this is the center that I was created to have. Not only that, but because the fact that I agree with the biblical claim that God made the whole thing, he made everything and it's all for him, I'm more scientifically curious. See, the, the root of science, like uh, science, the scientific and the medical community sprung out of a biblical worldview. 
The fact that scripture says that things are regulated and ordered, that within in nature, there's laws of nature, there's, that things work, that there's design. Newton was a guy that, that, that was capitalized on the fact that we can see what God has done in nature, and that drove him to further exploration, further experiments, because you could do experiments when things are regulated. You're just discovering more laws of nature and more truth. And then this guy came along um, who was a believer, or he, he claimed he believed the Bible. I don't know if you ever heard of him. His name is uh, Chuck Darwin. This guy, in all honesty, is, is brilliant. He, he's somebody who, who had some of them, I think he's one of the most, uh, there's a reason why he's heralded as such an amazing scientist. He is phenomenal. And he started off, um, the thing that got him into science was this book called Natural Theology by a guy named um, William Paley. And, and William Paley, like Newton, said, look at what God has done. And, and the fact that God has done this and it can be regulated brings us to the point where we can say we can discover something. So let's just not just think everything just happens. Let's discover why. Let's discover how God did it. And that got him in. And over the course of time, he ran into a book on geology that talked about the age of the earth being far more than he had previously quantified. And that kind of made him go, I don't know if I can gel that with what scripture says. And then, and then um, he started having people in his life that, that, that prematurely died. And he saw the suffering of the world. He said, man, I don't know if I could gel that either. And so he went from being an Anglican to an agnostic over the course of his life. Now, I don't believe that Darwin set out with a purpose to destroy faith or Christianity or anything else like that. But he did set out towards the end of his life to say, I want to produce a science that's different than Newton and Paley had. I want to have this totally divorced and scrubbed clean of God because we could probably do that more naturally. We could just simply observe the natural realities within science. Problem is that you have to believe in God in order to do science. Um, a, a scientist who just wrote a book called Redeeming Science um, said this, all scientists, including agnostics and atheists, believe in God. They have to in order to do their work. See, just like um, a lot of times we, we say that we believe something that we don't in practice in everyday life really live out. Like, for example, if you are a Vedantic Hindu philosopher in India and you, you believe that all life is an illusion, you believe that until you're walking across the street and you see a bus coming for you. You realize that bus is not an illusion. And, and if I don't move, I will become the illusion underneath that bus. If you're a complete relativist and you say there's no such thing as truth, you believe that in the classroom or you believe that in, 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 your, in your books that you write, but you, that doesn't flesh with real life because you do believe in truth because you board a plane that's going to be hovering right around 30,000 feet. You believe truth then in the, in the laws of aerodynamics and, and, and structural engineering, that there is some level of regularity and some level of truth applied to this and just like that, science, um, which kind of post-Darwin started to look at, at, at reality for, through the lens of, you know what, the, let's divorce ourselves from an origin point and let's say instead that this is all random and chance and time. The problem is that you can't discover scientific um, discoveries through random chance. When, when, when you're seeing patterns and you're seeing that you can prove this and it can be reduplicated, you're proving that there's some regularities. Who's the regulator? You're seeing laws of nature. Who made the laws? Scientists in their discoveries are looking in the face of God. And if you believe what the scripture says, you know the God they're looking at. And so you should be the people. We need to be the people. I could be the person that's not more scientifically, scientifically averse 
Christians should not be known for that. Christians should be the most scientifically curious people out there. They should be the type of people that are stoked to see what, what the scriptures are, or what scriptures are saying and how scientific discovery is saying, and look what God did in DNA. We didn't have a microscope before this, but we knew that God did this, and now we see how. We're looking at, at proteins, mitochondria. We're looking at the cell structure. We're looking at the, the he, double helix of DNA, and we know who did it. That should make us even more passionate. Um, the scientist, the, Vern uh, Poitras, the guy who wrote Redeeming Science, said, this is not re- what real science is like, talking about just this kind of divorce from reality science. This is not what real science is like. Real science means exploring and adventuring. And now with more maturity, I might add, and from time to time, after a long, exhausting climb, we catch a breathtaking glimpse of the beauty of God. If you're a Christian, if you're rooted in the belief that God did all this, then you're more scientifically curious if you're a Christian and you're rooted in the belief, and actually in the triunity of God, you're even more attracted to diversity than anyone else could possibly be. And diversity is, is kind of like one of these fad words that is, is super popular now, and lots of people are into diversity, but they don't know why. But we do. You see, diversity is something that goes against the natural tendency for us to be tribal. All throughout history, you have people who are honestly tribal. Who's going to win? Our team, well, I guess we're still doing that. Our team's going to win. But we do that on, like, on national levels. Like, who's going to win? It's going to be our race. We will win. We're the pasty whites. We're the browns. We're the Vietnamese. We're the, whatever our stripe is, we, our tribe, will rule. And, the, and what's going to rule is how many bodies we can pile up on the other side of the fence. Our tribe wins. And, and the objective is that the closer we get to homogenized culture, the more happy we are because we, we don't have any of the difficulties that diversity produces. Shortly after Darwin's um, Origin of the Species, this became a popular concept of, wow, you know what, if we divorce God from this process, that helps us kind of come with, formulate some other ideas. Like this natural tribalism it can be explained through the fact that we're just trying to have this, this perfection of our species. And honestly, the perfection of our species has to be our color. It has to be the fit among us. And so re, right, shortly thereafter, you have things like eugenics, eugenics being surfaced. And even, even Margaret Sanger, who founded Planned Parenthood, um, she is someone who came out with this concept of, uh, of, of a rationale for, for birth control. And I'll be honest with you. Christians disagree on birth control. I have no issue with birth control. None at all. But Margaret Sanger's rationale for it is just very telling. Look at what she said. Birth control itself, often denounced as a violation of natural law, is nothing more or less than the facilitation of the process of weeding out the unfit, of preventing the birth of defectives or those who will become defectives. And that is a pretty strong tribal claim. I, Margaret Sanger, am going to make a judgment on who is fit and who is not. And she expounded after that of, of who defectives, people who are defectives are people who have some type of malady, some type of handicap, or aren't white. In a, in a letter to one of her friends, she said, we do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population if it ever occurs to any of the more rebellious, of their more rebellious members. Now that, that makes perfect sense, to be honest. If you have no root in the belief of God, if you have no root in the belief of God, then tribalism makes perfect sense. But if you actually believe in what Scripture has to say about the triunity of God, then all of a sudden you see unity in diversity. 
That, that, that the goal is not this, this, this elimination of diversity. You look around at, at who God has crafted and created, and you realize that he's done this. This is a reflection of him. And even within the Godhead, you see unity in plurality. And so for us as Christians, we all of a sudden find ourselves, because we believe that claim about who God is. Why does the Trinity matter? A lot of reasons. But for one reason, that means that no matter who you are, no matter how different you are from someone else, you have an example of differences operating within beautiful unity with one another. And obviously, you're working with, with imperfect people, but you still have the example and the rationale. You have the reason for being attracted to diversity. Where everyone else says, I, I, I don't know, it's, it's nice. It's a nice thing to do. You actually have the value of why it should be cherished. Not only more genuinely centered, more scientifically curious, more attracted to diversity, but because you believe that God is spirit and we're created in his image, you become more life-passionate Become more focused on the fact that, that this God crea- crafted us in his image and that we are inherently valuable simply because we are more than biology. We're simply, because we're more than just this accidental stardust that we're walking around and just animated because I don't know why, but it just happened. We become more life passionate. Um, famed atheist uh, Richard Dawkins. This guy is a piece of work. Man, I, you know, there's some people that you'd like to meet. I really, honestly, I'd love to meet Richard Dawkins. He's way smarter than I am, but I'd love just to sit there and go, really, man? Really? He wrote The God Delusion and uh, a lot of other stuff, but he was, uh, on Twitter, he was responding to, to a woman who was saying, I've been recently told that my child that I'm pregnant with is going to be, uh, going to have Down syndrome, and I'm conflicted on what to do. And he tweeted back to her, abort it and try again. It would be immoral to bring it into the world if you have the choice. Now, that got a little buzz. I got a little buzz from the atheistic community, the agnostic community, and the believing community. People were flipping out. How could you possibly say this? How could you possibly? And he's like, whoa, 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 folks. This makes perfect sense. Like, I don't understand how you don't understand this. This is logical. The only reason that you feel anything for this thing in, inside there that's not yet born, that's going to have Down syndrome, that's going to be a burden, is because you're emotional. You're not being logical. If we're logical, we understand that the purpose of life is to be happy. And how can you be happy if you're raising a child with Down syndrome? On his website, he, um, he saw that he really put his foot in his mouth, and so he wanted to apologize, and he made it worse. <laughs> he said... I would personally go further and say that if, you are, if, you are, if your morality is based, as mine is, on the desire to increase the sum of happiness and reduce suffering, the decision to deliberately give birth to a down baby when you have the choice to abort it in, early, in the pregnancy might actually be immoral from the point of view of the child's own welfare. You will probably be condemning yourself as a mother or yourselves as a couple to a lifetime of caring for an adult with the needs of a child. Your child will probably have a short life expectancy. But if she did outlive you, you would have the worry of who would care for her after you're gone. No wonder most people choose abortion when offered the choice. Now, his apology, his sorry not sorry apology, produced a couple of comments. And I wanted to print out the article uh, so I could read it for you. So I pressed print. And you know, like sometimes they have a comment section and there's a couple of comments underneath it. I went over to the copy room about eight minutes after I pressed print. And this is what came out. These are the comments from atheists, agnostics, and believers. 
And honestly, the atheists and the agnostics, Dawkins nailed it. The thing I appreciate about him is that he could be a jerk, but he's consistent. He could be, he could be wrong in his assumptions, but at least he's consistent. Because he says, look, we're, we're just biology. This is about you and yourself. You're producing the most happiness for your own life. And if you're an atheist or an agnostic, well, if, you, if, you're, if you're a Christian, then, then you're out to lunch already. But if you're an atheist and agnostic, this is the conclusion to our beliefs. How could you think otherwise? See, we, we know why we think otherwise. We know why we, we could share with our atheist and agnostic friends, this is why we're more life passionate. This is why that at the core of your being offends you what Dawkins said. It's because we believe that this God crafted in us more than biology, but something sacred. That's, that's, that sacredness is something that produces a passion for life. We're more pi- passionate for life. Not only that, but because of the fact that we honestly believe that this God is true, we, we, we're rooted in the biblical belief that God is true, that, that he is faithful, we could be more peaceful in the face of chaos. It is a lie that if you're a Christian, you will not experience difficulty. It's a lie. If you become a Christian, all of a sudden your problems go away. Your job's going to be secure. People in your life aren't going to get sick. People aren't going to die. That's, that's just a total lie. And sometimes Christians, as Christians, we put that out there. Everything's going to get better once you start following Jesus. You may run into the same reality in life in a broken world that your neighbor across the street does. But the difference is, is if you're rooted, if you're rooted in the belief of God that he is true, that he is faithful, that in the midst of mourning, and you will mourn, you know that he's true, and you can have peace through that. In the midst of crying, and you will cry, you have peace that goes beyond your understanding. In the midst of questioning, God, I don't understand your plan in this. You can experience the peace of knowing that this is not the end of the sentence, that this God is sovereign even over this. So, what, so how do we pass that on? The, the whole thing of, being, of multiplying is, is, is saying, if this is what we believe and we're rooted in this belief as Christians, well, then we have to pass this on to someone. There's people around us, young believers, that we can pass this on. And so if you're going to be that type of person, first off, what you need to do to multiply is know for yourself and be able to share why you're becoming this new person. See, if you're in God, this is going to start naturally happening in your life and start growing in you. And the more that you're exposed to the gospel and what he's doing in you in scripture, it's going to happen. But if you could, you could actually know why, on the back side of your notes is basically just the, the, a, a week, daily week reading guide for everything that we've just been talking about with just a couple more passages in, in most of the situations. I'm challenging you as a people, if you're a follower of Jesus, to find a pocket of time in the morning, find a pocket of time at, at when you're uh, at lunch break or before you go to bed just to read, this, read the passage that's on that particular day. Write it on a post-it note, stick it on your dashboard so you can see it throughout the day and, say, and just ask God, dear God, this is truth. Let my life be rooted in this reality. Let this be the thing that dictates my life. Not, not me as the, at my core, what my, what my gut says, but let this be the thing that speaks truth into my life and transforms me into the person that you're calling me to be. I'm challenged, and that starts tonight. So when the game's over, when, you know, before you go to bed, when you're just like, oh man, that was amazing or terrible, whatever, find some time to get with God and spend some time on, on the passage for today and then pick that up on each day. Second thing is this, budget proximity. 
have people, budget time in your life, and, and have people in your life who are close enough to watch you respond to life's challenges, victories, and defeats in light of your belief in God. Because they're going to watch you. If they do life with you, they're going to watch you fail. How does a Christian who's rooted in the belief in God fail? They're going to watch you have amazing victories. How does a believer who's rooted in the belief in God and him being the sovereign person over them actually, actually operate with that as a reality? They're going to watch you go through pain. Don't push them away. Let them walk with you through the pain and watch as a believer filters through the difficulties and complexities of life in their, rooted in their belief in God. Now, if you're at all OCD, you realize that I missed a blank. And I'm not using a profanity there. You may, I missed a blank on the notes. Okay? And the people are laughing. If you're sitting next to someone and you're not laughing, that's the person I'm talking about. I would just think, oh, a bonus line. Fill in what you want. Margaret Sanger was right about one thing. There are unfit people in society. There are defective people in society. The problem was that she didn't see that with her too. She didn't see that this reality that's out there that she could call from other people is something that everyone, every person on the planet struggles with. All of us are unfit. All of us are defective. Because of sin, we are all broken. And if you're rooted in the belief in the God of the Bible, the one true God, you understand that, that it is his kindness that leads you to repentance that he made the absolute amazing provision that your salvation is outside of you. It's something that he did for you. And that produces in you the ability to become more grateful. Christians should be the most grateful individuals on the planet because we know where we came from and we know what it took to save us and we know where we're going. What you're about to see are the testimonies of 19, 20 people who are expressing in baptism the fact that they are honestly aware of their brokenness and their need for a savior and that that happened, that Jesus saved them and that they're publicly declaring that salvation rooted in his resurrection before the church family. When you see these people get baptized, when when you see them go under the water and come up, celebrate because this is your story as well if you're in Jesus. Take a watch.